Did you know that you can be a critically thinking, rational person and be a Christian? Did you know that there's good evidence that Christianity is true? Did you know that the Christian faith can withstand the toughest of scrutiny? Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we believe because of the brains God gave us and not in spite of them. I'm your host, Evan Minton. Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we use the brains that God gave us. Today I am talking to Dr. Tim Stratton about his newest book, Div- uh, Divine Knowledge, Human Freedom, and Mere Molinism, a biblical, historical, theological, and philosophical approach, or I call it Mere Molinism for short because it's got a really long title. Um, and this is a, this is an issue that has really interested me. I remember uh, discovering Molinism for the first time. I didn't become Molinist immediately because uh, I had some reservations about it that I see other simple foreknowledge Arminians have, misconceptions about it, uh, like Roger Olson, he thinks it collapses into determinism, but that was pretty much the only one I had. And after that was removed, I got on board with it, because as I started looking into it, it was really Randy Everest of Possible Worlds who Mm. convinced me uh, that Molinism was true and removed some of my objections. It started, things started falling into place about God's sovereignty and how it relates to our free will and Kenneth Keithley and showed me how uh, soteriological issues sort of fell into place because I had always felt like, you know, the Arminians have a lot right, but when it comes to some of the stuff that Calvinists say, they sort of have to wiggle around and sort of explain things away. And when I became a Molinist, I had, I stopped explaining things. I haven't, I stopped explaining things away. Um, and I heard a theologian on the Naked Bible podcast once say, there are no problem passages, only problem theologies. And mm-hmm. I think divine determinism, simple foreknowledge Arminianism, open theism, these are problem theologies. They can't deal with the whole of scripture. And so we're going we're gonna to be here on the podcast talking to Dr. Tim Stratton about his book in which he shows that Molinism can account for all of the biblical data, philosophical data, what have you. So um, if you've been following the podcast for a while, uh, this is uh, this is Tim Stratton's third time on the podcast. The first time he talked about the free-thinking argument against naturalism, and the second time he talked about the apologetic significance of Molinism. So, Tim, welcome back to the podcast. Oh, thank you so much, Evan. I always enjoy our conversations, and it's just a pleasure to be here with you again today. So, uh, Tim, on your on your own podcast, you said that you were going to pass this dissertation. You're gonna you were gonna try to get it passed <laughs> at a reformed seminary, a seminary full of Calvinists. Mm-hmm. So, tell our audience why you decided to do that. <laughs> Yeah, that was kind of crazy. Um, I mean, who would do something like that, right? You know, I got to say, uh, when I was uh, first looking into uh, enrolling at Northwest University, um, I had a a colleague uh, who not only graduated from there, but was also a professor there, uh, Dr. Yaquibus Erasmus, who I think is uh, perhaps the most underrated philosopher in the world. He's also a reasonable faith uh, director uh, so he's uh, you know he works 
um, in the, you know, in Dr. Craig's organization there. Uh, and he's really sharpened me for, you know, several years. He's a fantastic metaphysician. And uh, he has a book on the Kalam that's out. Uh, just, just brilliant. And he encouraged me to uh, check that uh, institution out, Northwest University. Mike Lacona was actually the first person to encourage me to check uh, out uh, NWU. Uh, Mike did his doctoral work in South Africa at the University of Pretoria. And uh, Northwest University is not too far from there. And Mike was doing some adjunct professor work at Northwest and encouraged me to to check that out. And so I did. And I, I, I knew uh, after talking with Mike and especially especially with Equibus that, you know, uh, Equibus, it looks like Jacobus is how it's spelled. But South Africans uh, say things weird, you know. So, <laughs> uh, so uh, I mean, so if you just look at it, what a name, Jacobus Erasmus. I mean, can you get a cooler name than that? Uh, but uh, knowing uh, how, uh, you know, like I said, that Erasmus, uh, in my opinion, is the most underrated philosopher uh, in the world, uh, just interacting with him uh, through reasonable faith uh, projects and things like that, I just was really impressed with him. And so uh, when I first got into the, when I was first accepted by the university, I was actually in the philosophy department. But as we uh, started hammering out exactly what I wanted to do. Um, uh, I, I ran into some problems because at that point I realized that it was a reformed university. I didn't realize that at first. And so my initial uh, response was, I got to get the heck out of Dodge, right? I got to find somewhere else. But then uh, while deliberating between staying at Northwestern, I remembered that I believed, and I've, I've said this before, that Molinism was compatible with Reformed theology, and I had said in the past that I considered myself to be Reformed. So it hit me that it would be quite an accomplishment to argue that Molinism is compatible with Reformed theology at a Reformed institution. So I decided to move forward with that specific research proposal and uh, the research proposal, I've got to tell you, was it was more difficult than my master's thesis at Biola. So think about that. The research proposal, it was so tough getting that accepted um, at, because, because it's a reformed institution. Um, and initially, they're like, you can't argue for this libertarian free will. You can't argue for Molinism because it is not compatible with reform theology. And I said, I am going to show you otherwise. So I kind of had to make my case up front. And then uh, I did get moved to the theology department. So I did not get a, a doctorate in philosophy. My doctorate is in theology with a, a focus on systematic theology. And uh, so that, yeah, that's how it started. Uh, I guess I, you know, I, I, I saw that as a great challenge, a cool challenge. If I were successful, this would be quite the feat. But I've got to tell you, about a year ago, I was really getting nervous. Um, just some of the pushback that I was getting from my supervisor. I was like, man, I, I, I'm getting close at that point to completing the dissertation. And I was like, I, I don't know if I'm going to pass. I just don't know if I'm going to pass this when it gets to the committee. Um, but I stayed the course. 
And ultimately, uh, I passed. One of the committee members said that it was uh, at least one of the best dissertations that he's ever graded. And uh, so, yeah, uh, I argued that Molinism is compatible with Reformed theology at a Reformed university. And i um, pretty happy about that. Yeah, I, I thought that maybe the reason – I thought that maybe in addition, it's because, you know, these would be like the people who are like the would be the most critical. You'd get the most pushback from it. So you'd be able right. to sharp you'd be able to sharpen your arguments uh, more than you could if p- people who are probably more accepting. Well, that's exactly right. That's why I thought it would be quite the feat or the challenge to argue for this at a reformed university, because these are reformed theologians. And so even when uh, working through the research proposal, it was, uh, you know, so I had to uh, um, interact with the committee beforehand, just getting my my research proposal uh, accepted. And so they were letting me know exactly what they wanted me to deal with. Uh, now, I added a lot in there, but, um, you know, I saw, <laughs> you know, one person uh, was complaining that I didn't uh, interact with, you know, such and such a scholar and uh, maybe in the philosophical and secular philosophy or whatever, but you know, I, I really I had my assignment laid out in front of me. Uh, I had to argue theolo- uh, argue for a specific theology and argue that it was compatible with another uh, theology, and uh, so I, it was it was aimed at the theologian, at Christians, and I was going to deal primarily with uh, other theological works. So that's what I did. Yeah, yeah. So, so like when, so like when people want to like criticize your doctrine or uh, your doctorate, they can't be like, oh well, of course it you got accepted. You did it at like you did it at a Christian university. Yeah, well, that's that's what that's what I that's what I hear when people like uh, criticize master's theses. You know that uh, you know about maybe uh, an apologetic argument for God that gets passed at Biola. Oh well, of course they would accept it. They're all on board with that. <laughs> well, but let you, me tell but you they this. can't they can't say that about you because you you were like in a very hot you passed your dissertation in a very <laughs> hostile environment. <laughs> that's too that's true. And I will add that it's not a Christian university. Northwest University is a secular uh, university. And it just happens to have a reformed theology department. Um, and uh, and it's connected to the philosophy department. I'm not sure exactly how that uh, plays out there, but the theology department is uh, Christian reformed at a secular university. So kind of weird. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so what what goes into writing a dissertation? How many hours did you have to study? What kind of materials did you read in your research? I can just imagine you oh. in your in your study with with like five or six massive piles of books that you got to go through. <laughs> yeah, I still got to clean my office. It's uh, I just got books everywhere. Because I, I I'm an autodidact, and I know how much research I put into and in putting out my you know these papers and blog yeah. posts and and popular level books. I can only imagine how much you would have to go into for a dissertation. Yeah, it's it was crazy. I, I'll tell you what. Uh, I know a couple people with two doctorates. I never want to do another uh, doctoral dissertation again. That's for sure. Uh, I'm looking forward to writing, uh, doing some more books, but. Uh, wow, this was uh, it, it. It was a challenge. I mean, people ask me how long it took 
um, you know, I say, well, three years, but then I thought, well, no, actually five. And then the more I think about it, actually 10, you know, <laughs> so what I mean by that is once the, once the research proposal was finally accepted and they said, go, and I started paying, uh, you know, the, the tuition started, <laughs> um, that was three years, but I was working on you know, getting the research proposal, uh, accepted. I was still, I was working on it during that time. I was, um, you know, just planning on it being accepted. And if it wasn't going to be accepted there, I was going to go somewhere else maybe and get, uh, maybe and, and, and try it there. So I was working on it for probably closer to five years, but then, you know, even when I was at Biola university, I started going there, I got enrolled in 2010 and it, it was right around that time when I was, uh, really vacillating between Calvinism and, uh, and Molinism. And so I was even doing a lot of work back then. Um, I was a I was a diehard Calvinist, a, a cage stage Calvinist, a five point tulip, uh, exhaustive divine determinist Calvinist before all of this. Um, and, uh, you know, by cage stage, they mean it'd, it'd be better by a cage stage Calvinist. They mean uh, for those kind of Calvinists, it's better to have them locked in a cage and out in the out in public. And that's how I was. I was I was willing to go toe to toe with anybody and fight for Calvinism back in the day. Uh, so I, I would, I had already done some previous research there regarding Calvin and, you know, and, uh, and Luther and, and just reformed theology in general. So, uh, really all of this can be traced back. Uh, man, I mean, really, I started arguing for Calvinism, I think probably back in 2001, maybe, uh, maybe 2002. Um, but I, you know, I really started taking it I, you know, I, I would say I got to the cage stage level around 2007, 2008, and then uh, uh, really started having my my view rocked a little bit when I saw Dr. Craig mention something about uh, the fact that he wasn't a Mullen or that he was not a Calvinist when he was debating Christopher Hitchens. And I was like, I'm going to prove him wrong. And so that's really, you know, that was what back in maybe around. 2010. Uh, that's really when I started my journey to disprove Molinism and in the process uh, won me over. So anyway, uh, it's been been going on for a while. So much reading, so much writing, always thinking about the topic, you know, even when I'm not working on the topic. And that was probably one of the, the detriments of this project is you just really can't get away from it. I mean, uh, you can't even go to the movies without uh, thinking about it. Well, maybe that's a good thing because when I watched uh, the Avengers, I realized that they were appealing to something similar to God's middle knowledge to save the to save the universe and de defeat the evil of Thanos, and that was pretty cool. But I was just always thinking about the topic. You know, I, I would have notebooks just uh, tactically placed around the house, so if I if a thought came into my mind, I could write it down. You know, I would have one out outside of the shower. That's a, a good, that's a good idea. I should start yeah. doing that. <laughs> oh, it works great because, man, some of your best best thoughts are in the shower and you can't do anything about it. So I would have one uh, in, in the bathroom. I'd yell at my wife. I'm like, honey, come here for a second. She's like, what, you got another idea? I'm like, yeah, write this down. And and also, I mean, we'd be, we'd be on the road like, you know, the last two or three years. I remember, you know, we'd get on the road and we'd drive uh, two or three hours sometimes to some of my son's wrestling meets. And uh, while we're on the road, if I'm driving, 
uh, you know, we're just quiet for a while. We've got this windshield time and I'd be thinking things through and thinking of new arguments, deductive arguments. I'm like, oh my, this is amazing. Oh, honey, you got to write this down. Get your, get your phone out, type this out, you know? <laughs> and, uh, so I'm just constantly thinking about it. Um, and you know, there's pros and cons with that. <laughs> it's hard to be a normal person. That's why, I, uh, I encourage people to, you know, try to escape and watch, uh, movies and watch some, uh, sports and things like that. Uh, it just helps to keep you grounded and, uh, try to, you know, look, keep you somewhat normal. But, uh, but yeah, I, constantly reading and writing. Um, and I'll tell you what, I mean, so many books, so many books. I've got so many books here in my house, but my former pastor who used to be a Calvinist and taught me about Calvinism, um, <clears throat> is now a Molinist. And, uh, because of what happened with me and I was able to interact with him for probably over a, a year or so and eventually convinced him. Now he's a diehard Molinist as well. But his library right here in my own town is just unbelievable. I helped move his library into his basement. It took all day with several other guys, you know, sweating like crazy. Uh, uh, so many books. His library rivals, and his theological library rivals any other that I've ever, ever seen. Um, in fact, it might be better than anything I've ever seen as far as theology books go. Um, so he, he would study, he would meet with me once a week, at least that, to, to study with me. Um, and it was great because since I was doing this, uh, you know, um, just over the internet, I guess, or, you know, as a dissertation that uh, I don't have to be in the classroom to do that. Um, so as I was writing this dissertation, I was running so many ideas past him and he was pushing back on me and then we'd go to his library and, uh, I could find everything I wanted there. It was just such a great, um, just a great opportunity to have access to, uh, to somebody who was willing to push back on me as a former Calvinist and to have access to his library. It was so cool. Um, but, uh, yeah, if he doesn't have the, the hard copy of a great theological work, um, which he's got, mostly he's got the hard copies of them, but he's, he's also, uh, has everything electronically too. So I had access to everything I wanted. Um, so books and journals and interviews and whatever, I, I would also watch, uh, w watch as many interviews as I can with people that mattered on this, or I'd listen to their interviews on different podcasts. I was just trying to get, um, uh, just access to as many people, um, as many thoughts as I, as I could on this uh, and related to this topic. So much of this stuff didn't make the cut. Uh, I ended, this book has 16 chapters, but I bet I cut what would have become another dozen chapters. I actually wrote another couple chapters completely that I deleted. Um, and then I had mapped out uh, several other chapters uh, with, you know, uh, you know, when I say I mapped them out, I had the, the, the flow of how it was going to go, what I was going to say, things like that. I just didn't finish it and type it all out. But I, I realized, man, I, I've already got 16 chapters here. Um, I was going to, you know, at first I wanted to tackle both evangelical theologians and secular philosophers. And uh, I also wanted to take on every single objection to Molinism that I could get my hands on. But ultimately, I decided to keep my, my big book 
relatively short <laughs> and gra uh, and plus I wanted to graduate and simply make my case and attack determinism, whether it be uh, theological or naturalistic. Um, so the focus of this book is primarily theological. The primary target is the church or Christians in general. And do you know uh, Kyle Barrington? You're friends with Kyle? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, uh, I like how he said it. Um, you know, he's a he's a good Molinist thinker. And he, he said this, quote, uh, I see the book as primarily theological with philosophical elements. Secondarily, it also seems it is pastoral theology, i.e. the aim is to reconcile theological issues in the church and provide practical application of Molinism to theological issues and apologetics while supporting each of those points with philosophical arguments, end quote. And he went on to label it as a theology and a theopraxis book. Um, so I think he, he summed it up and explained it quite nicely. It's not a strict philosophy book. Like I said earlier, my PhD is in theology with a focus on systematic theology. But I take a philosophical approach to theology, also get into metaphysics and epistemology, things like that. But primarily, it's a theological book. And I support my theological views with logic and the rules of reason. So with that said, uh, I like to say I'm a systematic theologian and an analytic theologian. So uh, I, I think it, you can describe an analytic theologian as one who appeals to the, uh, the laws of logic and the rules of reason to uh, grasp truth about yeah. ultimate reality and God. But a systematic theologian as well um, doesn't just try to make sure that your beliefs are biblically coherent, but you also reach out and appeal to other uh, uh, studies and fields. Uh, you know, that's why the, the, uh, the subtitle of my book is a biblical, historical, theological, and philosophical analysis. So I make sure that all of these uh, fields work together. And so that's uh, how I see systematic theology. So in chapter one, you lay out the, the rules of biblical interpretations, um, i.e. hermeneutics. And I have my own response to this, uh, this objection. But one of the objections that I get from a lot of uh, Christians is that Molinism would have been a foreign concept to the Old Testament and the New Testament writers, and therefore it's really read into the text. It's not getting at the authorial intent, and we don't we don't want to do that. I preach that a lot when I'm talking about the primeval history. We don't want to read modern <laughs> ideas onto the ancient text. Right. So how, how do you respond to this charge? Well, I would say Calvinism, Arminianism, open theism, and every other uh, ism uh, would be foreign, a foreign concept <laughs> to, uh, to those folks as well. Um, so that's not much of a charge. Uh, I, I would just say that it's a, a, a really bad objection because, uh, in my book, I clearly define what is meant by mere Molinism and that basically in a nutshell that, uh, just entails the two essential ingredients, um, which would be number one, that God possesses middle knowledge and number two, humans possess libertarian freedom. But then I appeal to scripture to show that the biblical data supports these two ingredients. So it's a biblically based view. Um, it's we go to scripture, we find what the scripture uh, describes, and then we say, well, look, this is 
if scripture describes, uh, you know, one and two, both these two key ingredients, then Mary Molinism is true. So now on top of that, as a systematic theologian, I also appeal to perfect being theology, you know, that God is a maximally great being and, and think about what that means. But God's maximal greatness then combined with key passages from scripture uh, seals the deal uh, that mere Molinism is true. So that's uh, one of the approaches I take yeah. as well. So I, again, yeah, I look at that. The way I, res- the way I, yeah, the way I respond to it is that they're confusing exegetical theology with systematic theology. Like right. exegetically, we can say, okay, well, the, this passage here teaches that God, and, and you know, th- this group of passages here teach that God is sovereign over all things. He controls everything. Everything mm-hmm. is, you know, nothing is outside of his control. We also have these passages over here that either explicitly say or strongly imply that human beings have libertarian free will. And this is, this is what the, we do all of our hermeneutical rules and we apply them to the text and that's our conclusion. But then what are you left with? You've got to, you've got to explain how these, these seem to contradict. How can Mm -hmm. God be? And that's where you got to start. That's, that's where everybody starts doing philosophy. Uh, You know, the open theists, the divine determinists, the infralapsarians and and superlapsarians, the Molinists. You can't not do philosophy philosophical theology at this point yeah uh, unless you're just going to say you know and this is what i think the biblical authors did i don't think the biblical authors try i don't think they had a view of how this worked out i think if you were to ask the apostle paul how can god be sovereign over all things and we also be free paul would have probably <laughs> paul would have probably said to you um you know his ways are higher than our ways and his yeah. thoughts are higher than our thoughts as high as the heavens are above the earth <laughs> right. um so that's 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 where I, I get at it. It's like, you know, we're not reading we're we're reading things out of the we're getting our our bricks, you know, to use Habermas language. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're getting our bricks out of scripture, but then we're using philosophy to figure out what is the best way to explain these coherently and to make sense of what we've gotten from the ancient text. Yep. Well said. Um, and speaking of uh, these biblical passages, I did I I did like chapter two of your book because mm. it's it's um it it really is the the driving thing that that brought me to Molinism was that you know I, I saw these other guys the Arminians the Calvinists the Opathy, it seemed like their their views could explain some of the data but with things that seemed to contradict them they just kind of you know shoehorned them into their system. I was just a simple more fo- simple foreknowledge Arminian because it just seemed to have the fewest amount of problems. Yeah. Um but and in your in chapter 2 you list a whole bunch of Bible verses that say God is in control of all things, he's all sovereign. And then after that you list a whole bunch of scriptures that uh explicitly or implicitly imply that human beings are free you 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 mm-hmm. labeled you call the chapter biblical foundations biblical yeah. foundations for the debate would mm-hmm. you mind listing a, a handful of the verses on both sides for our audience yeah you bet i mean uh i, I knew that we had to start with scripture uh i mean chapter one basically starts with hermeneutics how do you interpret scripture correctly um but then we had to start chapter two really uh, lays the foundation what does scripture say? Uh, and 
you know, we, we constantly hear, well, Molinism isn't based on scripture, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, well, okay, I'm going to start with scripture. So now what are you going to do? You know, so in that respect, uh, the book is, is quite unique. Um, but, uh, but I'll say this, I mean, Molina himself, I guess, you know, not completely unique because Molina started with, with scripture as well. But, um, I do survey, I try to be fair and I don't make an argument in the second chapter. I just list out the scriptures. I'm like, all right, this is here. Here's some of the data, the biblical data that leads people to think that, uh, that everything's determined. Uh, but it's definitely the data that shows that God is completely sovereign, right? Um, but then here's the other data that says, no, we got free will, uh, really in, in the libertarian sense. Okay, so you know, I'm, I'm just set, setting up. Uh, the rest of the book at this point, but yeah. So you want, you want me to give some of the scriptures I use supporting sovereignty? Yeah. Like give like, give like five or six examples for both sides. All right. Um, okay. I I listed, uh, Psalm 115 verse three, uh, you know, uh, God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Isaiah 46, 10, uh, this one's a little stronger declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Uh, so that one's pretty powerful. Um, so that's just sovereignty in general, you know, the ends from the beginnings. Um, <clears throat> then when we get into soteriological matters, um, you've got, uh, let's see. John 6:44, you know, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Uh, Ephesians uh, 1, 11, uh, talks about uh, things being predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, right? So, I mean, that, that, this implies that all things are predestined. Um, so that's, uh, that's something we got to deal with there. So the Bible has much to say about, about God's, uh, exhaustive sovereignty, if you will. So the big questions raised are these. Now, how is God sovereign? How does God predestine all things? So that's really then the focus of, of the debate. Um, is God sovereign by causally determining, uh, in some form or fashion, uh, all the thoughts, actions, beliefs, and behaviors of mankind, or do humans possess libertarian freedom? Now, if humans possess libertarian freedom, uh, then God cannot be in control by causally uh, determining or, or ca causally controlling, if you will, all things all the time. But according to the Bible, humans have what we refer to these days. They didn't refer to it back then as this, but these days we've clarified some things and defined uh, definition, you know, got uh, defined words and terms. Um, humans would have what we refer to as libertarian freedom uh, in Scripture. So let's look at a small sampling of the biblical data. Uh, we can just start with Genesis 22, verse 1. Um, it says, after these things, God tested Abraham. And I go through in the book and I show that, uh, that, that here that the word uh, test means that uh, if God is testing Abraham, how could he be causally determining Abraham's response? 
that doesn't make any sense. So any time a test is given uh, to a human by God, um, it doesn't make sense to think about that, that uh, God is going to causally determine uh, the, the person who's being tested to answer uh, yes or no to a question, for example. Um, let's go to this one, uh, Jeremiah um, 32, uh, 35. And, I, you know, I got to say that the more I study, even since I've published this, I keep finding scriptures that support libertarian freedom. And I think this is one of them. I don't think I put this in there. Um, Jeremiah 32, 35 talks, uh, says they built the high places of Baal and the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Molech. Though I did not command them, says God, nor did it enter into my mind. Hey, you know, they sh- you know, I that I was re- I'm reading through the the NIV Live app, yeah. and I just read that verse today, and I was like, did you? If de- and I and I thought to myself, if deter- I've used this argument before in debate, but I was like, you know, if if God causally determines everything, this verse doesn't make a lick of sense. Right. Right. I mean, so listen to this last part of it, right? God says, though I did not command them, nor did it enter into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. So that's Jeremiah 32, 35. So, he, so here God is clear that he did not cause this sin. It was up to them. It was up to the evil humans. Um, now, we can then go to the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Uh, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So uh, that's a pretty forceful passage demonstrating that at least some humans possess what I refer to as limited libertarian freedom. Now, Paul's teaching is that God has provided Uh, at least Christians here, some humans, with an ability not to sin, uh, they are able to not fall into temptation. So accordingly, whenever Christians do sin, it's not that they had to. There was a genuine ability to do otherwise because a way of escape was available for them to choose. So with, with that in mind, it's important to notice that there is a range of alternative options, each of which are compatible with a Christian's regenerated nature. And that's uh, really the uh, definition, one of the definitions of libertarian freedom that I defend. Uh, there are several definitions of libertarian freedom. One is simply that you're the source of your thought, action, belief, or behavior, um, and, uh, and that you are not causally determined uh, to have uh, a certain thought, belief, or to commit a certain act. Um, but that you're simply the source. And the other is the ability to do otherwise. But I like to cash this out and say, well, look, if a person ever possesses an ability to choose between a range of alternative options, each of which is compatible with their nature or or their image of God nature or their regenerated nature, whatever this nature is, if if you've ever got this ability to choose between or among a range of alternative options, uh, then at a certain moment, then you've got libertarian freedom. So anyway, with 1 Corinthians 10.13 in mind, um, when people can and freely choose to sin and were able not to sin, it follows that they are genuinely responsible because they were able, right? They were able, therefore they're responsible for their sin, right? 
God's not responsible. Don't don't say the devil made me do it. And whatever you do, don't say God made me do it. Why? Because you were the source. You were responsible. It's more than just sourcehood freedom. You had the ability to do otherwise. You could have taken the way escape, but you failed to do it. So you're responsible for your own sin. Uh, now, I like to go to Galatians 5.13 as well. And I love how Paul says this. He says, you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters. But don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. Now, freedom is clearly stated here by Paul. He's talking about freedom. So are we talking what kind of freedom are we talking about? Libertarian or compatibilism? Well, uh, Paul here goes on to add that there are choices as to how this freedom uh, is to be expressed appropriately, not with behaviors which come from a person's sinful nature, right? Paul implies that you could do that, but instead do something else with a commitment to love one another. That's what you ought to do instead. So you could be selfish or you could, uh, look, he says this, uh, but don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. So he's talking about your nature here that you have. You could do one thing or you could do another and Paul's telling you what to do and what not to do. So I think this is another example of libertarian freedom. Now, we can move to soteriological issues, right? The, the, the fancy word for salvation issues. And I don't know if you want me to read this uh, whole passage, but Yeah, before uh, you do before you do though, I would like to point <clears> out um I I'd like to point out one verse that I was surprised didn't get mentioned uh -oh. by you uh because it's it's something that I uh, whenever I read the book of Proverbs and I come across this verse, I'm always like, this is like the two, this is like the, the two issues put together in a single verse. And it's Proverbs, oh, it? it's Proverbs 16, nine in their hearts, humans plan their course, but mm. the Lord establishes their steps. Yeah, that's a great one. And I mean, that um, doesn't say anything about, you know, libertarian freedom, but it says humans are yeah. doing things and yet God is establishing their steps. So you've got the two, yeah. the, the two agents together, co you know, to use Molinist philosophical language, co-actualizing mm -hmm. states of affairs. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm, uh, are you sure that wasn't in there? I feel like I've written on that before, but if it, I, I know that I forget, you know, I, it's not an exhaustive study. I know that, um, you know, I'm looking at in my table of contents right now and the biblical foundations starts on page 17 and the next chapter starts on page 41. So it's a big chapter and I keep finding scriptures that I wish I would have included, um, in that chapter. Uh, so yes, not exhaustive, but it's big. It covers a lot of ground. It's sufficient, and, yeah. Yeah, definitely sufficient, yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, I'm like, dang it, I didn't put that one in there. That would have been a good one. Um, but yeah, I'll have to, you know, maybe in 10 years I'll do a updated and revised version, and I'll make sure to collaborate with you, and and we'll get some more one, uh, some more uh, passages of scripture in there. <clears throat> How's that sound? And, yeah, maybe some yeah. of those deleted chapters too. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Uh, people are asking me to to uh, interact with uh, some we'll just say secular philosophers on some of these issues. And I have interacted, taken extensive notes on some of these. And I am actually interacting with a couple of these guys anyway, right now, um, writing some uh, academic uh, philosophical journal articles on these matters. So uh, 
I bet those will be included in the updated version eventually. So, man, this, this man, if I do that, though, this book is going to be as big as uh, Philosophical Foundations for a Christian Worldview or something like that. I feel so. okay with that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, but but yeah, but then again, I'm a super super duper theology nerd, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> big big books. I like big books, and I cannot lie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh man, that's <laughs> a little Sir Mix a lot in there. So, um, yeah, so you know, let's get back to the biblical passages for libertarian freedom. And I I don't I don't know if I should read this whole passage. Uh, it's big. It's Deuteronomy 30 10 through 20. Let me uh. Just go through uh, some of the key words here, um, the key parts of it. Uh, Moses is uh, giving some commands to the Israelites, uh, preaching to the Israelites, telling, uh, uh, the, giving the Israelites a message from God. And what he's saying here, I mean, l- listen to some of this. What I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you. It's not beyond your reach, right? So Moses is saying this is something you, you can do. Uh, a few verses later, he says, no, the word is very near to you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart so that you may obey it. Uh, some versions say that you can do it. And then he says, see, I set before you today life and prosperity, option one, or option two, death and destruction, right? So here's a range of alternative options, each of which seems to be compatible with the unregenerated Israelites' nature, right? Life and death or, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, death uh, sorry, life and prosperity or death and destruction. Um, he says, for I have commanded you today to love your God, to walk in obedience to him and to keep his commands, decrees and laws. Uh, then you will live and increase and the Lord your God will bless you. Uh, he goes on. Um, later, he says, uh, this day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you, right? He set before him, again, multiple options, multiple alternative options, each of which seems to be compatible with the unregenerated Israelites' nature. Listen to this again. I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. And then he says, now choose life so that you and your children may live. But guess what? They don't do it, right? <laughs> they don't all, they don't. They don't all do it, right? So they could choose life. He's commanding them to choose life, but they don't. And so uh, the, there, there seems to be a range of alternative options here, each compatible with their natures, and they don't take it. But even if they did take it, uh, either way, there's a range of options, each compatible with their natures. So that's libertarian freedom by definition. So uh, again, to clarify, that passage is attention getting because these are unregenerate unregenerate Israelites. So I'm not just talking about libertarian freedom in some things. This is a passage that actually seems to suggest that it's that you you should apply libertarian freedom to salvation issues. Um, So they are, again, to choose between life and death, between blessings and curses. And Moses pleads with them to choose life, making it clear that the Israelites actually possess the ability to make this choice. So that is to say that this choice is up to them. It's not causally determined by things external to them. And further, he makes it clear that this is not only something that they possess the ability to do, but moreover, that it's not too difficult for them to do. Uh, They can make this choice. Uh, the, The ESV reads, 
you know, and that's the Calvinistic Bible, right? The ESV reads, so that you can do it. So this seems to be not only biblical support of libertarian freedom to choose otherwise, but libertarian freedom regarding the offer to choose either to choose God, if you don't like that language, at the very least, not to reject his love and grace. So um, I guess that's that's probably sufficient for scripture yeah. at the moment. Yeah, I always tell people to go a, read the book. <laughs> yeah, and there's a parallel. There, J- Joshua and Joshua 24 says basically the same thing. Yeah. And you know, like I said, you know, I'm I've got the NIV Live app. I'm I'm listening to this drama, this great dramatized Bible, and I'm reading along with it. And I'm in the Major Prophets right now, uh, in the Book of Jeremiah, uh, having finished Isaiah. And you know, when you read the Major Prophets. And you see God's constant complainings about the sins of Israel. One comes under yeah. the impression that Israel's actions were up to them in a libertarian free will sense. Right. If they were if they were causally determined by God, God would have no reason to complain. He could just causally mm-hmm. determine to worship them and not other God. Why complain about Baal and these Asherah poles and all that? And just just cause <laughs> them to worship you and mm-hmm. there you know, there's no problem. Yeah. It, it and it really I mean, all of these rants that that go through various chapters, God is just complaining about something that he could just snap his fingers and, and make <laughs> go his way. Right. And if, and if you ask me, if, if humans do not possess free will, libertarian free will, I think I think the the all of the words of the major prophets are just senseless. They're reduced to senseless theatrics. Right. And I think that's uh, one of the reasons why. Uh, this Calvinistic view of exhaustive divine determinism, uh, well, it's just simply never going to catch on from people who take uh, the whole of Scripture seriously. There's just too much against it. Sure, uh, some people are going to, um, and by by catch on, I mean uh, be you know uh, convince all Christians who take Scripture seriously. <laughs> uh, it's just not a good theological view. It doesn't make sense. Of all the biblical data, you gotta find a view that makes sense, not just of some biblical data, right? They might say, "Well, Romans nine makes sense of Calvinism." Okay, but what do you do with all this other data that would say otherwise? Um, you gotta, you gotta have a view that makes sense of everything, and I think Molinism does that. Right. Um, so, okay. So, anyone who has followed the Cerebral Faith podcast since the beginning, or have read my blog post on Molinism, or have followed. Free thinking ministries for more than a day or two <laughs> uh, will will know what Molinism is, what the you know briefly you know just basic what it is and what it's trying you know how it explains the sovereignty free will debate. But this is not this is you know some podcasts like Michael Heiser's Naked Bible podcast where he he like uh, exegetes entire books of scripture covering thirty part episodes. Uh, this is not like that. This is a topical podcast. Uh, people can pretty much jump in anywhere they want. And so I always have in mind the people who may never have listened to anything you or I have said before. So for those un- for those people, they may not know what Molinism is. Take like five or six minutes to just, you know, explain what it is and how it explains how God can control everything yeah. and humans are responsible for some things. Okay. Uh, well, probably to do that, let's let's uh, kind of set up the problem we're trying to solve here. And, and so I, I'd like to start with uh, Calvinism, 
which seems to be reducible uh, to uh, divine determinism, uh, or as I say, exhaustive divine determinism, uh, at least in one way or another, that, uh, the view that God causally determines all things that happen all the time. So if all things really means all things, then this would include all the thoughts, actions, beliefs, and behaviors of all people all the time. So this leads uh, many, to, many people to the conclusion, I think correctly, um, that if Calvinism is true, then God is ultimately the author of evil. And the one who forces or causally determines the majority of humanity to suffer in the eternal fires of hell uh, for all eternity. Uh, so this does not uh, seem like, you know, the omnibenevolent God who is love, according to First John 4, 8, uh, the God that Jesus claimed to represent or who desires all people to be saved, according to First Timothy 2, 4. Uh, and the God who desires no one to perish, according to Second Peter 3, 9, or the God who so loved the world that whosoever, right, in John 3, 16. So this this leads many to choose then the second option, uh, which I will call the simple foreknowledge view, which is commonly, maybe not fairly, but commonly referred to as Arminianism. Now, this view gives humans the freedom to choose our eternal destinies and gets God off the hook, as it were, uh, for the, the evil deeds humans freely choose to commit, right? So that's that's what's good about it. But uh, the, the, the bad news is that the simple foreknowledge view also seems to relieve God of his uh, providence and sovereignty that we've already seen that scripture seems to affirm. So, I, I mean, think about it. Uh, if God simply foreknows the future free actions of creatures, uh, of creatures, how is he in any legitimate control of the future free actions of creatures. Just knowing what somebody is going to do doesn't give you any control or sovereignty over what somebody is going to do. Uh, and moreover, uh, the, the Bible is clear that God is not only sovereign, but that he predestines not only the elect to heaven, like we see in Galatians 1.15, but that God is provident over all things. We already discussed Romans 8.28 and Ephesians 1.11. So if God predestines all things to happen, then how could the simple foreknowledge view of Arminianism be true? So uh, what I've argued, though, in the past is that this uh, dilemma is actually a false dichotomy. And I argue that much in the book as well. So, uh, you know, contrary to popular opinion, there's another option from which to choose an option in the middle between Calvinism and Arminianism. And it seems to answer the uh you know, some of these problems. Uh, and this, this view was, was uh, first crafted by a 16th century theologian from Spain named Luis de Molina and has come to be known as Molinism, uh, derived from his last name, Molina Molinism, okay? So this view grounds God's sovereignty not only in his perfect power and his omnipotence as divine determinists uh, solely focus, it seems, but it also considers God as a maximally great being and all of his omni attributes. So therefore, omniscience is factored into the equation along with omnipotence. So namely, uh, or Molina pointed out that since God is all powerful, he's omnipotent, then God has the ability to create many different possible worlds, including worlds with creatures whom he does not always causally determine, right? God has the power 
to create a free creature. Um, God has the power to create beings who possess libertarian free will. God also has the power not to create any world at all. However, with that in mind, if God was powerful enough to create different worlds, since he's also all-knowing, he's omniscient, then God would perfectly know all that would happen in each of these potential worlds that are within God's power to create, if God chose to create them or not. And this is even the case if God never brought these worlds into existence. God still knows what would have happened if he created any of these worlds within his power to bring into actual existence. So this full view of God's omniscience includes what is referred to as middle knowledge. So what is this kind of knowledge in the middle of? Middle knowledge is between God's natural knowledge and his free knowledge. Now, uh, most Christians have probably never heard of these terms before. I'm trying hard to change that with the the book and with the website um, and other uh, means like interviews like this. So trying to change a few things here. Um, But let me explain it. God's natural knowledge uh, simply refers to everything he knows that he could actualize, right? So that just means all potential situations within his power to make actual. So when you think about omnipotence, that means omnipotential. So all these potential things that God could do, even the things that an omnipotent God never does, uh, God knows everything that he could do and all that would happen if he did any of these options. So middle knowledge refers to the fact that God knows everything that would happen if he were to create a certain world within his power to actualize and even if he never does. So that's a mouthful, but God's free knowledge means that God knows all that will happen in the world he's chosen to create. So you've got God's natural knowledge, you've got his middle knowledge, and, he's got, and you've got free knowledge. Um, so in, in a nutshell, if God is always omniscient, uh, without beginning, then God perfectly knows all that all that could happen and all that will happen, and he also knows all that would have happened in a different situation that he could have created. So that is to say that God knows all that could, would, and will happen, and, and knowing the difference, there's a philosophical difference between could, would, and will, and to ignore any of, any, you know, to ignore either could, would, or will, <laughs> any of those words, uh, is going to lead to big mistakes. But middle knowledge is the would. Middle knowledge brings the would. If God knows everything that would happen in any other situation or scenario within his power to create, if God knows that, even if he never does it, right, and that even if he never does it is vital, right, if God knows that, even if he never does, then it follows that God must have middle knowledge. Um, so, I know this is getting a, a bit technical. Uh, you said, you know, suppose that uh, people are new to this, so I apologize if I'm getting into some deeper water here, waters here. This will be the deepest I get here. Um, it gets technical, but it's vital to note that God's knowledge of what could and would happen, right? So what could and would happen is logically before God's decree to create the universe. God's knowledge of what will happen is foreknowledge in the universe, and that's logically after, right? Not chronologically after, but logically after his creative decree, his decision to create the world. So the simple foreknowledge view uh, has a problem because it's only dealing with uh, what will happen, 
not what could or what would happen. So I think a, a maximally great being has, uh, he knows what he could do, what would happen if he did it, and what will happen. So he's got this uh, whole view. We've got to keep a, the, the big view of omniscience here. Yeah, yeah. And here's here's how I break it down for people when I'm talking to them, uh, either online or just in person, casual conversation, uh, you know, Starbucks coffee conversation. Yeah. I, I use I use the example of Jesus's crucifixion. You know, we, we see in Acts 223, uh, the Apostle Peter says uh, this man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's right. deliberate plan mm -hmm. and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Right. Look what so, you did. Yeah. <laughs> and the crucifixion of Jesus was deliberately planned by God. His foreknow yep. And his foreknowledge played a role in the matter. And middle knowledge is just a type of foreknowledge. It's a it's counterfactual foreknowledge. Right. Um, God planned it, but it was wicked men who did it. Now, how— how can God and man, you know, how can man be responsible if God did it? Well, we Molinists say that God knew that if Caiaphas was high priest in the first century, then he would freely condemn Jesus on grounds of blasphemy, and he would freely choose to take him to Pilate for execution. God knew that if Pilate was prefect in the first century, then he would freely comp comply with the demands of the crowd. And God knew that if Judas was born in the time and place that he actually was and endured the circumstances that he did, then he would become Jesus' disciple for a while and would freely choose to betray Jesus to mm -hmm. the Sanhedrin. Uh, God knew how all of these people would behave if he placed them in the times and places that he actually did. God decreed the whole thing, but the libertarian freedom of the actors – remain completely intact. Thus, yep. unlike divine unlike divine determinists, simple foreknowledge, Arminianism, and open theism, which uh, we both agree are, are they're all plagued with numerous issues, yep. Molinism can best account for the whole of Scripture. You know, that's right. God, God knows that it if God if God wants Bob to choose X, uh, if if God knows if Bob were in circumstance S, he would freely choose X over non X. God can actualize a world in which Bob finds himself in S, and therefore, just like God knew he would, he chooses X instead of non-X. Yeah. That's – oh, my dog is barking. I'm going to let him out. Uh, All right. <laughs> Crazy dog. Okay. Um, I, I agree with you. And you know, There's an article I have on my website called The Freedom to Trick God, and I would encourage people to check that out. One of the things I say in there, uh, I'm not looking at it right now, so let me see if I can remember how I worded this. But um, God knows that he can create uh, non-causally determined uh, person. Let's call her Sally. Non God can create Sally and uh, freedom-permitting circumstance, and that if he does, she will freely choose X uh, instead of not X. So then God chooses to create Sally in a freedom-permitting circumstance. So therefore, then, God knows that if Sally... He, he, he already knew that if he created Sally in a freedom-permitting circumstance, that she would freely choose X. He creates Sally in a freedom-permitting circumstance. Now God knows that Sally, uh, existing in a freedom-permitting circumstance, will freely choose X. So all that changes here is that Sally would freely choose X 
to now that Sally will freely choose X. So all that happened is the word would transferred uh, or tra uh, transformed into will. So would transforms into will. So you got would freely transforms into will freely. Uh, would transform to will, but the word freely does not magically disappear. And libertarian freedom is not defined as the ability to, to trick God um, or to choose other than what God knows you will do. It just simply means that you are not causally determined and or that you have the ability to choose between a range of alternative options, each of which is compatible with one's nature at a given moment. Uh, so God can know how a free creature will freely choose in those instances. So anyway, I kind of uh, got us off uh, track there a little bit, yeah. but I like what you said. It makes so much sense of all the data. And that's um, that's the very last sentence of my entire book on page 293 at the very bottom of the page. I say, this is all to say, the inference to the best explanation of all the data is Molinism. Um, so it is the best explanation. It makes the best sense of the biblical data, the best sense of, uh, with, once you factor in perfect being theology, the best sense of uh, metaphysical argu arguments and epistemology. And uh, it just makes so much sense. So it should be preferred. Yeah. I was just going to say, that's at the end of a book focused on apologetics. All these apologetics arguments uh, seem to assume uh, or are strengthened by Molinism. So it's yeah, just I, such a preferable view. I see, and I see, um, I see um, how that can explain, like the Book of Jonah, for example. You know, God says to Jonah, "Go preach to Nineveh," and he's like, "Heck no," because then they might repent. And I hate the, yeah. I hate the people of Nineveh. I want to see them destroyed. So he runs off. God knew that if Jonah were swallowed by a whale, he would freely choose to preach to Nineveh. Right. Uh, so God, God acted on his knowledge of what Jonah would do. To get him to carry out his purposes, uh, you know, yeah. initially, initially, just simply commanding him to do that would cause him to turn tail and run. But God, um, I hate to use this word, but he sort of manipulated the circumstances, so to speak, to get Jonah to <laughs> change his mind. Yeah. So, yeah. in uh, in chapters three to eleven of your book, you you go through church history. You talk about how the famous theologians throughout the ages have wrestled with the biblical data concerning God's sovereignty and man's freedom. And I was surprised to, to learn this, but most of them didn't actually affirm determinism in all things, uh, right. did they? Uh, save for Augustine near the end of his life and Jonathan Edwards. Uh, tell the audience about that. Yeah, uh, I mean all of these theologians, I go from Augustine – uh, to, to Pelagius, to uh, Aquinas, to then, uh, so that's pre-Reformation, and then I get to the Reformation, and I start with uh, Erasmus, and then go to Luther, and the Calvin, and the Philip Melanchthon, and then to Arminius, and get us to uh, eventually the, the, the Synod of Dort, and the Canons of Dort, uh, and get us through all of that, and then eventually go post-Reformation, and get us to Jonathan Edwards. And I got to tell you, I, I was surprised uh, as I started this uh, historical survey and this journey um, to, to see what all these uh, guys said. I was surprised even to see what I could find from Calvin. My, my goal was just to see, OK, uh, look at everything they, they've said. And, and any time I saw anything that would uh, look like libertarian freedom, I was going to make a note of that. But I didn't think I was going to find it. 
uh, Calvin and Luther or Melanchthon. Uh, I knew that I would find some of that with Augustine in, in his earlier days. Um, and of course, I knew that I would find some of that with uh, Pelagius and uh, Arminius. Uh, and nothing gets me more frustrated when somebody calls uh, an Arminian a, a Pelagian or a semi-Pelagian. I don't, and I talk about in, in my book why that's not fair. Amen. Um, all right. <laughs> but uh, um, anyway, I was just oh, and, and Aquinas, I got to tell you, is a beast. I, I, I wrote one more page about Aquinas than I did about Molina in my book on the historical survey of Molina. I, I wrote an addition, I think at least one more page um, when it came to Aquinas. Aquinas did a great job of arguing for libertarian freedom, especially when it comes to uh, the issues of rationality, uh, which is very important to me and uh, get into that in later chapters. So, um, but let's get back to the Re Reformation. I thought surely this was all going to be exhaustive divine determinism. Now I get, I mean, it, it looks like, Sometimes Calvin talks out of both sides of his mouth, but I'll tell you this, I can find quotes where he clearly affirms what we would call libertarian freedom, the ability to choose between a range of alternative options, each of which is compatible with his nature at a certain moment. Calvin does that. He affirms it. Luther did the same. Uh, uh, and, and if there's any remaining doubt, Philip Melanchthon, the systematic theologian of the Reformation, makes it crystal clear. Uh, I'm not going to I'm not going to read all this to people right now. I'm just going to say go read my book and you you can read this. Yeah, post. yeah, we're just get, we're just There's giving them a, we're just wetting their appetite. There you go. There you go. So, in my opinion, uh, I can't find anything um, from uh, Augustine to Aquinas to Calvin and Luther to the Synod of Dort. I can't find anybody where they affirm uh, exhaustive divine determinism, uh, or at least, uh, you know, and, the, and those who I think get close to it, they at other times are within the same work, affirm uh, that definition of libertarian freedom. So I'm finding uh, it's just, just you can be, you can practice reform theology and not ha you're not committed to exhaustive divine determinism. In my opinion, uh, Jonathan Edwards. Post-Reformation is the real culprit, right? He's the guy who started this, this Ed view, this Ed nonsense. This, by Ed nonsense, I mean exhaustive divine. Yeah, EDD. It's yeah, funny EDD. how that works out. <laughs> right, right. Ed. Ed words, right? He's, yeah. he's the culprit. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so people today refer to it as Calvinism, but it's really Edwardsianism, uh, this Ed view. So uh, anyway, the next two chapters after that demonstrate that Edwards was wrong. <laughs> yeah. So in uh, in in chapter twelve, you you start to get into various philosophical arguments for libertarian free will, including your famous free thinking argument, which is the namesake of your ministry, free thinking ministries. Mm -hmm. um, now, because we've already you you've you were on this podcast yes. talking about that episode, we're not going to. I don't want you to spend a whole lot of time on that, but just sort of give them the, um, you know, the nutshell, kind of like in your blog post, the free thinking argument in a nutshell, uh, yeah. the premises and just some of the reasons to think that they're true. Um, all right. So uh, I've got the free thinking argument, and then I've got the free thinking argument against naturalism. 
the free thinking argument is just uh, two premises and a conclusion. Uh, but then I expand upon that uh, and I add two premises and then I get uh, two additional deductive conclusions and another abductive conclusion. So I'll give you that one. Um, I'll just say if, the, if somebody doesn't like either of the first two premises, I just transition to the core of the argument and make it simple and uh, just argue for libertarian freedom. But I think we can get more than that because uh, I'm a little bit greedy. Uh, so, so I started like this. Premise one, if naturalism is true, the immaterial human soul does not exist. And by immaterial, I mean uh, something other than nature. I could just call it the, the supernatural, if you will. The supernatural human soul does not exist. But I typically just, just say if naturalism is true, the immaterial human soul does not exist. Premise two, if the soul does not exist, libertarian freedom does not exist. Three, if libertarian freedom does not exist, then it's impossible to either rationally infer or rationally affirm knowledge claims. Uh, four, it is possible to rationally infer and rationally affirm knowledge claims. Five, therefore libertarian freedom exists. Six, therefore the soul exists. Seven, therefore naturalism is false. Those are all deductive. And then I add an abductive, uh, make an abductive move, and I say eight, the best explanation for the existence of libertarian freedom in the soul is the uh, is God or the biblical view of God. Now, in a nutshell, I typically and briefly defend each premise in the following manner. I'll say basically premise one, which is if naturalism is true, the immaterial uh, human soul does not exist, right? Premise one is synonymous with if naturalism is true, nature is all that exists, right? That's that's straightforward. Uh, premise two is tantamount to if all that exists is nature, then all that exists, including everything about humanity, is causally determined via the laws of nature, the initial conditions of the Big Bang, quantum mechanics, right? All things outside of human control, right? Now, that is a premise that most atheists affirm. Right and, and argue for. Sam Harris wrote enti an entire uh, book defending that um, that premise for me. But premise three communicates the fact that if something outside of human control causally determines you to affirm a false belief, then it would be impossible for you to rationally infer or affirm a better belief, uh, let alone the truth. So you're in a bit you're in a lot of trouble there. So if our thoughts and beliefs are forced upon us and we could not have chosen better thoughts and beliefs, then we're simply left assuming that our determined thoughts and beliefs are good and assuming that they're true. Therefore, if that's the case and you're just assuming all of this, and by the way, you're being causally determined to assume it, then you could never rationally affirm that our beliefs really are the inference best or the inference to the best explanation, right? You can only assume it and that assumption would not be up to you either. It's simply completely out of your control. So here's the significant problem for the, uh, atheistic naturalist, for example. It follows that if naturalism is true, then atheists, or anyone else for that matter, cannot possess justification for their beliefs, which is typically thought to be minimally related for knowledge claims. But uh, with that in mind, what can happen to have true beliefs, but if they do not possess justification for a specific belief, and their belief would not qualify as a knowledge claim, Pardon me? Yeah, okay, now. Uh, sorry, folks, we had a little bit of a technical difficulty. Um, uh, the feed just cut out, and so what I did was I, I quickly downloaded the uh, interview, and I put it on a hard drive, and I had to hit the record button again, so 
Um, so, Tim, you can just pick up from where you think you left, uh, right. left off before it just cut out for no reason. Yeah, I think uh, I think I was pointing out the, the problem for the atheistic naturalists uh, who affirms determinism and is saying that it logically follows that if, if naturalism is true, naturalistic determinism, then atheists or any, anybody else for that matter uh, couldn't possess a justification for their beliefs. Now, most epistemologists would say that that's at least minimally required for knowledge. But even if somebody says, no, it's not required for knowledge, then, you, okay, well, you still don't have justification for your beliefs. Um, and that's not good. So one can happen to have true beliefs, but if they do not possess justification for a specific belief, then uh, it doesn't seem to qualify as a knowledge claim. But with that in mind, if one can't freely infer the best explanation, then one has no justification that their belief really is the best explanation. And without justification for a belief, uh, any claim of knowledge regarding said belief goes down the drain. It's not tethered to reality, as Socrates would say. Uh, and also, you're just left with question-begging assumptions, which is a logical fallacy, no reason to think anything. And you've got to realize that that assumption is not up to you. Something else is causing you to make that to commit that logical fallacy. So this is what Dr. William Lane Craig refers to as a vertigo, a sense of vertigo that sets in um, for everything you think, including this very thought itself, whatever thought you're thinking right now and the next words that go through your head. And, that, and now this one, whatever it is, it's not from you. It's from something or somebody else. So uh, obviously uh, humans possess the ability to rationally affirm claims of knowledge and to argue against this would affirm it, as one would have to offer claims of knowledge to the contrary. So uh, on top of that, if one rejects the ability to rationally affirm knowledge claims, and why should anybody listen to them? Uh, they've just, you know, uh, that's kind of self-refuting. They say, I don't know anything. Okay, then we won't listen to you anymore. <laughs> Do you know that? Um, but it follows that libertarian freedom, and then based on this argument, the soul or some immaterial or other than nature aspect of humanity exists, and therefore... It follows that naturalism is false. Now, I like to use a, a short uh, and clarifying thought experiment. Um, there's lots of mad scientist thought experiments out there and, and manipulation arguments out there. Um, but this was one that I came up with. Never heard anybody uh, run it quite like this before. And I say it like this. Uh, suppose a mad scientist exhaustively controls, uh, causally determines all of your thoughts and beliefs all the time. And this includes exactly what you uh, exactly what you think of and about and exactly how you think of and about it all the time. All of your thoughts about your beliefs and all of your beliefs about your thoughts are caused and determined by the mad scientist. This also includes the next words that pass through your head and, and the words that are in your head right now and the next words and, and even the next words that are going to come out of your mouth. With that in mind, here's a question. How can you, not the mad scientist, rationally affirm the current beliefs in your head as good, bad, better, the best, true, false, probably true, or probably false, right? Note the range of alternative options from which to choose, right? How can you pick one of those without begging the question? If there's only one of those that's compatible with your nature right now, then how do you know that it shouldn't have been another one? So anyway, how can you, not the mad scientist, rationally affirm the current beliefs in your head 
as good, bad, better, the best, true, or probably true, or uh, false, or probably false, without begging the question, go. Well, good luck. Good luck with that because it's impossible. You can't do it. It's not just a high hurdle that you got to go get over. It's impossible because whatever is in your head right now is not from you. It's from the mad scientist. And with that in mind, I mean, think about uh, your feeling of evaluating even this thought experiment right now. Your feeling of evaluating that thought right now is also not from you. It's not from the thing you refer to as I. It's not from the self. It's caused and determined by the mad scientist, not you. You have no control over what's going on in your head right now because the mad scientist is making it happen. So the same goes for whatever comes out of your mouth in response. It is caused and determined by the mad scientist. And I'll tell you, it's funny to watch determinists or any other objectors squirm when faced with this huge problem. I've never seen anybody uh, offer a way out of it. And by the way, they can't. It's impossible because as soon as they try, uh, it's from the mad scientist. Um, people get frustrated with it, but it simply shows the impossibility of the task. Um, but here's the deal. If you replace the mad scientist with physics and chemistry or replace the mad scientist with God or anything else, and you've got the exact same rationality problems, but for different reasons. But since humanity does possess the ability to rationally infer and affirm knowledge claims, and remember to argue otherwise is to affirm it, we know that we possess the libertarian freedom to think and take certain steps while deciding what we ought to affirm and believe, right? Let me say that again. We have the ability uh, and the freedom to, to think and to take certain steps. We get to decide what steps we're going to take while deciding what we ought to affirm and believe. And if something, uh, if, if something like you can't decide what you ought to believe if something or someone else determines what you will believe. Right. Think of it. Think of it that right. way. You cannot decide what you ought to believe. So if there's ever any oughts about your thoughts and I have a in my book, I have a oughts, what's called the oughts and thoughts argument. But the, if there's ever any oughts about your thoughts, which, by the way, Jesus seems to be much more concerned with how we think. Paul as well. Uh, the New Testament is focused on, uh, you know, often discusses the oughts to our thoughts. And so Christians really should affirm this, especially. But if there's ever any oughts about our thoughts, then uh, you cannot decide what you ought to believe or what you ought to think if something or someone else determines, causally determines what you will think and what you will believe, right? So it's, it's simply uh, there's no oughts there then. And since libertarian freedom then uh, uh, seems to be metaphysically impossible if humanity is nothing but physical stuff, really we have an argument for – uh, against super, or I'm sorry, against naturalism and for um, substance dualism, or at least some kind of dualism. And this really seems to make the most yeah. sense of biblical data. So yeah, like as I yeah, like as I said in my uh, blog post review of your book, you know there are different. Uh, you have different versions of the free thinking argument. They could be cashed out different ways, and they all have that core. You know, if we yeah. if we if we don't have free will, then we can't rationally infer knowledge claims, but we can. Therefore, we have free will. That that's right. always the core. But I really really love the the free thinking argument against naturalism because mm -hmm. it. 
it as I as I uh, and I think I said I said it this way in the review. It sweeps the legs out from both the naturalistic determinist and the divine determinist, and it not only establishes free will, but it establishes that some form of dualism is true. We're not just right. a body; we have a soul as well. So it's like right. it. It's like you know, boom! Physicalism is false, and determinism is false. And I just right. <laughs> I, I, I love I love that that argument can take out uh two uh, two ideas at once yeah one of my colleagues uh referred to it as uh, one of the most powerful metaphysical arguments he's ever seen because um it really you know what premise are you going to deny uh especially how it's defended uh it's really and the core the core of the argument is really it seems undeniable um and and then the expanded version seems really strong so it's, yeah, I mean, uh, with the with the natural version, I mean, I think one and two are just, you know, just true by definition. I mean, if nature is true, there's there's no such thing as a spirit or a soul. And uh, I mean, who who is going to? That just seems like the very definition of naturalism. And then two yeah. seems obviously true. The only one that I really think that you could go after, and this is, I see most people go after premise three. Yeah, they don't do. I don't. They don't do so successfully, but they just. They grant one, two, and four because oh, they, they have just, to they grant just, four. They just yeah. have to. They they yeah, can't yeah. For, do, to re, deny premise four that rationality and knowledge do exist or that we can read. That's self-refuting. And <laughs> right, one is true by definition. I guess if you know, it, it's just uh, three is really your is really if you're gonna go after it at all, three is just really one's only hope and even that's well, very slim hope no I, I i disagree i think uh based on how especially based on how i've defended uh three i don't uh I, well yeah i, I said I it was i said it was a slim yeah. i said it was a slim hope i said right but you know at least at, i would least i would three. say this i think if if i was going to say what do i think is the weakest point of the argument and i don't think it's weak at all so i'm saying they're all extremely strong yeah, I, I but, agree with you. But, you know, as I've tried to attack my own argument over the years, I've found that the if I were uh, playing devil's advocate, I'm going to go after premise two. Um, I don't think it's successful to go after it. I've never seen a good way to do it. But uh, I think out of all the extremely strong premises, that's the weakest. And I, I do quote a couple atheists. Uh, philosophers of mind uh, who would reject premise two. I, I don't think they'd be able to explain why they reject it. Um, but like John Searle, uh, he'd be a naturalist um, who affirms libertarian free will because he realizes you can't have rationality apart from uh, libertarian freedom to think. Uh, Evan Fales would be another atheistic naturalist who would do the exact same thing. And then there's even uh, and one of the world's leading proponents of libertarian freedom is Peter Van Inwagen. But he's, a, I believe he's a physicalist regarding humanity. I don't think he believes in the soul, which is because yeah, yeah. you know, he's a Christian. And, you know, yeah, and, and you know, and, I, and I'm, I'm right. kind of the odd, as, a, as an annihilationist, you know, we're kind of the, we who are dualists are the oddball out. And I'm trying to figure out why that is, why most conditionalists are physicalists they, oh. they, they don't they don't seem to be connected they don't they don't it doesn't no. seem like it doesn't seem like you have to have one yeah i you no. know my i i don't want to get too off topic but my yeah. just based on my own shower thoughts about this i think that this is really <laughs> just uh 
a super i think this is just a knee-jerk reaction against platonism because you read edward fudge and you're like oh well the uh, eternal torment originated with the idea that the soul can't die. So we're just going to reject the soul altogether. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's uh that's bad. I, I've written on my website uh, about, I mean, in my book, I do a lot about hell and I argue against uh, universalism, but with that said, and I do argue for uh, eternal hell, um, but I would grant that annihilationism is a form of eternal uh, hell, it's eternal separation from God. And so I don't rule out your view of annihilationism, even though I hold, I, I think, some view of uh, e- uh, eternal consciousness is still true uh, for those separated from God. But I would take more of a, a great divorce view of hell uh, by C.S. Lewis. But I don't rule out annihilationism. I call that my, my fallback view. And I've even gone as far as to offer a view that I do not think is true, but I can't rule it out completely. And that is a universalist view uh, uh, that Molinism alone can make sense of. Calvinism can't do it. So if one, uh, I mean, their only hope for universalism is through a form of Molinism. Um, but I also argue that's so extremely unlikely that any teacher judged by a higher standard should not teach it as a probability. <laughs> so uh, anyway, I, I talk a lot about hell in my book and why it's uh, why, you know, in your, your view of hell would um, be compatible with this. Why is there such a thing as eternal separation from God? And that's what I uh, spent some time uh, discussing. So does that make sense? Okay. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. I want to move on. Uh, I want to move on now. Cause we're running, uh, we're running kind of long, uh, move this along, and I want you to uh, talk about Kirk McGregor's argument for middle knowledge that you include in chapter 15. This is one of my favorite of, of the different arguments for why God possesses middle knowledge. All right. So uh, Kirk shared this with me, uh, I don't know, two or th- I don't know, at least a couple years ago, maybe two or three, uh, three years ago. Um, and you know, I realized that he's never published it. He did publish it. We, we put it on my website for a while. So that was the only place you could find it. But I actually took it down after I asked him for permission to publish it in my book. And so the only place you can get it right now is in my book. And I think it's a really cool argument. So definitely, uh, you know, he gave me permission to use it. <clears throat> and by the way, he wrote a fantastic forward to the book. Um, you know, I tell people it's worth the worth the price of the book to, to read McGregor's forward. Um, but here's the argument uh, from Kirk McGregor. It goes like this. Uh, premise one, uh, God either possesses his counterfactual knowledge logically prior or logically posterior to his creative decree. Two, if humans possess soft or limited libertarian freedom, then God possesses his counterfactual knowledge logically prior to his creative uh, decree. Uh, Three, humans possess soft or limited libertarian freedom, right? They sometimes have a range of options, uh, a a range of alternative options, uh, to choose each of which is uh, consistent and compatible with one's nature, right? And I've already, I can defend that with all the previous arguments that I've given uh, based on metaphysics, based on biblical data, uh, and perfect being theology, things like that. Um, So if humans possess libertarian freedom, then it follows, uh, conclusion, step four, therefore, 
God possesses his counterfactual knowledge logically prior to his creative decree. Now, this is middle knowledge by definition. And, uh, you know, since we're running out of time, I will just say, let's let people read the defense of those premises and the argument in general and the book. So, uh, yeah, fantastic syllogism there from Dr. Kirk McGregor. Yeah, and and you uh, you deal with the grounding objection really well at uh, as well, and um, I like I just want to say this about the book. It, it people might be kind of intimidated because it's a dissertation, at but you shouldn't be. Uh, at least I don't think so. Uh, it's it's concise and it doesn't sound like scholar babble like other treatments on <laughs> Molinism I've read. And I've I mean these like were popular level works I were I was reading and I'm like gosh this is just really extremely heavy stuff even for me and I'm really familiar with this uh, stuff or somewhat familiar with it. Um, and I was expecting this to just be like the most headiest thing that I would I would ever read, and I'm like, gosh, this is accessible. But then well, I also, th- but then I also think, is that because I'm so familiar with this with this stuff? It's like the the opposite. Well, that helps. It's it's like yeah. the opposite coin of the Dunning Kruger effect. You know, it's like, well, if it, yeah, if it's easy for me, it's got to be easy for you. Right. Uh, so I'm hoping that it really is as accessible as I think it is, and it's not just because. Um, and it's not just because I already know so much about the topic, but uh, I would say, yeah, it's I, I think it's 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 more accessible than other stuff I've read on it. And I would recommend whether you're a lay person just starting to, to look into these issues or if you're a, a, a scholar, a philosopher, uh, pick up this book. It's an excellent treatment on the subject. Uh, it covers a whole lot of different issues. It covers historical theology it covers exegesis it covers philosophy it's uh really really uh substantive treatment well thank you evan i you know i think you are very familiar uh, with uh the subject matter and so it is going to be easier for you but i was a youth pastor and in youth ministry for like 15 years and so uh I'm often accused by some that I'm, I'm, uh, I don't bring things down to the bottom shelf as much as I should. But I did try, even though this was a scholarly academic work, to bring it down as low as possible. So I think it's uh, people, I think the layman who takes their theology seriously is going to be able to uh, handle this book. Um, and, and, and Dr. McGregor says this in the foreword. First thing he says is Dr. Tim Stratton has the rare and precious gift of taking highly complex issues in philosophical theology and making them easily understandable to lay people at the same time as he shows their tremendous importance for scholars in the disciplines of philosophy and religion. And then he says, this book will be profitably and enjoyably read by lay people and scholars interested in various themes. So I I did, even when I was writing this for my committee and for my supervisor, uh, I did try to bring it down as much as possible. So it's very gratifying when I hear people uh, like you and like McGregor and uh, I've heard some others say that it's it's kind of easy, easier to read than maybe other books like this. So uh, that's encouraging. So one more question, and uh, that is, will there be an audiobook available 
for this at some point because one of the thing one thing that I I listened uh, a few months ago back in the summer the audiobook edition to uh, William Lane Craig and J.P. Moreland's Philosophical Foundations for a Christian Worldview. Oh wow! And I thought and I thought you know there really needs to be more audiobook versions for academic works like uh, Michael Lycona's The Resurrection of Jesus, A yeah. New Historiographical Approach, or N.T. Wright's The Resurrection of the Son of God. Th- these need to – we need more academic-level books uh, put into audio, and there just aren't – it's only the popular works mm. that get those. So will there uh, be an audiobook version at some point? Because that would be really <laughs> awesome. Yeah, uh, I've been asked multiple times – so I did contact my publisher. I asked, uh, you know, Whippenstock and uh, the guy, my main guy there. And I asked him about that and how that works. And he's like, yeah, you have the freedom to make that recording. So, uh, yeah, I think that's a project I'd like to tackle. And uh, yeah, I'm not going to make any promises about when this might come out, but I would like to see an audiobook version of my book uh, come out soon. So, yeah. All, all I'll say right now is, you know, let's pray that that actually happens. <laughs> but I would like to see it happen. Okay, so um, thank you guys for listening to the Cerebral Faith podcast. You can um, go pick up. Let me go grab the book. Yes, I wanted to make sure I gave you the fr- the entire title. It's called Human Freedom, Divine Knowledge, and Mere Molinism, a Biblical, Historical, Theological, and Philosophical Analysis. Um, I get I'll put a I'll put a link to it in the in the show notes so you can just go access it because it's it's kind of a long it's kind of a long title. I have to keep looking at it to remember. I just call it mere molinism for sure, yeah, man. I do too. But uh, go pick that up. It's a great treatment on molinism. And uh, go check out Tim Stratton's other uh, uh, other stuff on freethinkingministries.com. He's got a great podcast. He's got a whole lot of blog posts on uh, Molinism and other apologetic theological works. And uh, just go, just go check it out. It's a great and, uh, resource. Don't forget, don't forget. And the, I want to uh, give a shout ministries. out to my patrons: uh, James Gadomsky, Andrew Melnick, Michelle Minton, Nathan Hamilton, Edwin Liu, Jordan D. Hampton, Austin Long, Brandon Whitaker. And David Parrish, your uh, patronage is very much appreciated. It has helped uh, the Cerebral Faith Ministry to go farther than it would have without it. Um, and if you want to become a patron and you want to help see the ministry go farther, go to patreon.com slash Cerebral Faith. Thank you guys for listening. God bless, and I will see you next time.